The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. For each of you, what's that thing that really makes you want to get up in the morning? <laughs> well, for me, I guess the simplest answer is... I like money. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Represent. I'm Aisha Harris, and I'm so, so glad to be here for our second episode. I want to take the time out to thank everyone for the amazing feedback we've gotten on our inaugural show, which featured a conversation with Robert Townsend. It sounds like you all enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to keeping it going and bringing you fun, informative interviews along the way. Today, I'll be speaking with filmmaker Mira Menon, whose new film, Equity, stars a trio of talented actresses in a Wall Street thriller, and which you just heard a clip from at the top of the show. But first, I'm very happy to welcome another recurring guest host of mine, Alex Jung. He's a very smart and talented writer over at Vulture. Thanks for coming, Alex. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. (laughs) Yes, me too. Um, So, Alex, uh, as I just mentioned, I will be talking with Mira Menon about Equity. Have you you haven't seen Equity yet? Right? I did not get a chance to watch it yet. Okay. Now, one of the things that we mentioned in our in our interview, she brought up the fact that Anna Gunn, who most people will know from Breaking Bad, Skyler, yes, as Skyler White <laughs> on Breaking Bad, uh, she you know was able to identify with the role of playing this sort of very high powered Wall Street woman, and in part because of all the backlash that she mm. got from the Breaking Bad sort of controversy. Mm-hmm. Were you aware? I mean, you watched Breaking Bad, right? I did watch Breaking Bad. Okay. Um, I'm glad that she's leaning into it. Yeah. You know, like she got so much flack that was just out of control and unnecessary. Yeah. From the, I feel like probably Bernie bros are the people who really love Breaking Bad. <laughs> and they're probably the same people who hate uh, Anna Gunn or Sk- Skyler's character in the show. <laughs> it's so true. Just for a re, like sort of a recap for listeners who may or may not be aware of what happened, but during the, the course of Breaking Bad when it was airing, uh, the intensity of hatred for the character of Walter White, the the lead, her role as his wife was very much despised by a lot of people on the internet. It got yeah. to the point, it got so bad uh, that she r- took out a an op-ed in the New York Times and wrote this article uh, titled, I Have a Character Issue. And it was very, very smart. I'll read a very short quote here. She says, As an actress, I realize that viewers are entitled to have whatever feelings they want about the characters they watch. But as a human being, I'm concerned that so many people react to Skylar with such venom. Could it be that they can't stand a woman who won't suffer silently or quote-unquote stand by her man? That they despise her because she won't back down or give up? Or because she is, in fact, Walter's equal? 
So Walter White or bust. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, I'm just it. If you haven't seen Equity yet, it's definitely worth watching. It's great to see her taking that on and, and taking on that role of being the the woman everyone every misogynist loves to hate. Totally. So now moving on. BoJack Horseman, it, the se- third season just recently dropped a few weeks ago. Yep. I've binge-watched it. I, you've binge-watched it as yep. well. Same. Yeah. And, you know, a lot has been written about the show and its take on depression and mental illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a animated Netflix show starring Will Arnett in this world where humans and animals coexist relatively peacefully and animals are anthropomorphic and they do all of the things that humans do plus some of the things that animals also do (laughs) they have some animal qualities yes yes and so will arnett plays this uh washed up former 90s sitcom star of a show that's sort of like charles in charge or full house it's called horsing around yep and he's a very (laughs) depressed character who you know deals with fame or the lack of fame and tries to build up his stardom. But he's also a kind of terrible person. Mm-hmm. He's he's just kind of terrible. Or a terrible horse, I guess. Uh, anyway, even though there's been a lot of talk about all these different things between how it skewers Hollywood and mental illness and depression, one of the things that you recently brought up with me that I had totally sort of just ignored or not really thought much about right. is the fact that there are humans as well, and some of them are... They're not all white, thankfully. Uh, Some of them, including the lead character, Diane, who in the original uh, plot of the show is tasked with writing Bojack's biography. She is an Asian-American woman, but she's voiced by Alison Brie. Right. Which, Alison Brie is a... not Asian. She's not Asian. <laughs> she's perhaps best known to folks from uh, f- for Community, which is a great show, and she's great on it. She's, yeah. I think she's also great on BoJack. But the fact that she's Asian is a little troublesome. Right. And I, you know, like, I don't know how much Alison Brie had to do with that decision-making process. I assume very little. Yeah. Um, I assume it was something that the creators did. Um, I, I just don't know why they couldn't have made her white. Right. Like, I just don't see the point of having made her uh, Vietnamese American. Um, It's especially because the show is so smart about the industry, about media, about representation, about these things for it to like have these kind of very for for it to do this clumsy kind of voice casting seems it it still sticks in my craw, even though I like the show a lot. Well, that's 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 a thing is that. The show doesn't really do anything with the fact that she's Vietnamese. No. There are maybe a few shout outs. And in an early episode in season one, we meet her family right. when she goes back to um, for her goes back to Boston for her funeral. Right. And, you know, all of her family members, save for the black sheep, who is literally a black sheep. And <laughs> because this is a Bojack right. Horseman. Right. Everyone in the family is Asian and, and Vietnamese. And I think one character like makes some sort of joke and says i can't stand all these immigrants that's why i don't have a job they're taking our jobs and and she says something along the lines of we're vietnamese what are you talking about right like it doesn't matter but you know aside from that there's not much going on in terms of actually making aside from the fact that i guess she looks right asian and even that episode itself it's not really about her being from a Vietnamese American family as much as it is her being from like a Boston. They talk so Boston. Right. They, I, I'm assuming they that are they not are Asian all... American either. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to just listen to it and not see them, right. you would just automatically assume they were Irish Boston folks. Right. Uh, and the thing is, I've met, you know, Asian Americans with very thick regional accents before, like Northeast regional accents that you normally associate with like white working class people. But uh, like there's nothing plot wise or character wise that has anything to do with her really being Asian American. And so that's sort of why the decision to make her that confuses me more because especially if you're going to spend all this time doing this like Boston working class family dynamic thing, why not just actually do that? Right. And there is one moment in the latest season where right. – Sarah is trying to help Bojack. They're doing some role playing. Right. And he's apologizing. Yeah, he wants yeah. to. He's trying to 
prepare to apologize for all the crappy things that he's done. And Sarah starts talking like she's she's uh, Diane. And then then at one point she makes a joke about how she's the Asian Daria. Right. What is her deal? She's just the Asian Daria, right? right? And that was probably the first time I think that that was mentioned since season one. Maybe they there might have been a small reference in season two, but as far as I could find, that was it. Right. And and the and the butt was sort of I don't think the butt of the joke was the fact that she's Asian. I think it's more a, a nod to the fact that her character is very much like Daria, and people have made that comparison. Right. And so to, because she's also supposed to be an Asian character, they're just they just say she's the Asian Daria. Sure. I don't have a problem with that joke. Right. Yeah. But again, it's it's the one or two instances where they mention it. And it just feels weird. Right. I think. At the end of the day, it's like either make her white, right? Or like hire an Asian American actress. Like it's it's not like the show needed Alison Brie to to survive or to do well. And and at the you know, like it's it's a job. Right. And I and I think that's sort of ultimately what I think about at the end of the day, who is getting a paycheck, who is getting another chance to sort of make it in this industry. Is it really necessary to have a quote unquote star attached to this voice or could you give someone a shot who would, I assume, do an equally good job sounding like an Asian American woman? (laughs) Like I sound like an Asian American man. So for you, then, it boils down to that it's just about the actor getting the work as opposed to... Well, ideally, I would like to see a well-rounded Asian-American character. Right. Um, Like, that would be the ideal situation. And then for that character to then be voiced by an actual Asian-American actor. Right. I think that that is not a terribly big ask to make. And it seems perfectly reasonable in this uh, time when we're thinking consciously about representation and what that looks like um, for that to happen. But I think that because it's a cartoon, people think that it should have a pass um, and that it's sort of allowed to do these things actually are still kind of messed up. Like it, it, it's just animated. It doesn't actually change the dynamics of what's happening. Would, would you consider this another form of whitewashing? Because the representation is there right but it's not there behind the scenes right right i mean it's not so far from tilda swinton putting on us like a bald cap to play a tibetan monk yeah or scarlett johansson getting her eyes <laughs> digitally peeled <laughs> but they did <laughs> take backsy on that <laughs> <laughs> true I mean, I mean i guess this goes back way uh, just thinking about i think one of the more prominent early examples of this sort of thing and it's not quite the same thing but the thing that pops into my mind first is is dumbo and Mm. in that movie there are these crows that help out uh dumbo to help him learn how to fly and the crows are they're crows they're not people Mm -hmm. but crows and and black people have a there is a history of associating uh black people with crows Mm. and these animals talk as though they are black mm. characters in this very exaggerated sort of jive. It, the movie came out in 1941, so it's mm-hmm. very sort of hepcat sort of. Uh, and and I think lots of people are familiar. They sing a song called When I See an Elephant Fly. I heard a fireside chat. I saw a baseball bat. And I just laughed and I thought I'd die. But I'll be done seen about everything when I see an elephant fly. It feels icky because it's white people doing it. It's not. It's it's not black people. It's right. white people who are voicing and singing these songs. And then you have other examples going on from there, where cartoons. I mean, granted, these were happening at, at the same time that even on screen, it like in live action, it was still okay for these things to happen. But right. it's just, it is sad. Yeah, especially because I think we both love the show. Yes. Yes. Now. One thing I would like to ask is because there are other shows now that recently that have also done the same thing. One of the more egregious examples is Hank Azaria playing Apu in The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm not Indian American, I feel that that is a very offensive. Right. And that's especially thing. bad because he, Hank Azaria is doing a voice. Right. Right. It's he's doing an accent. Right. Right. Yes. And I, I guess that's I guess that's what makes and. Simpsons has definitely gotten flack for it in in yes. more recent years. Yes. 
I think the fact that it came out in the 80s, it was still totally fine for that to happen. If, totally. it, if it premiered now, it would not fly. Oh, no, it would be roasted. Right, which I think is why BoJack, no one's really talked about it, is because she's playing an Asian-American. She's not playing an immigrant or there right. is no accent involved. Uh, then you also have Rachel Bloom, who I love on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Same. who is also a character on the show, and her character is a black woman. Mm-hmm. Now, this character is also sort of a minor character. She is Laura, Princess Carolyn's assistant. And I don't think at all her race is ever meant. Like, it's not a point of the show. There are no jokes made about it. So it's especially weird. Why why is she black? Right. Right. (laughs) It's and it's not that it's not that Bojack Horseman doesn't have other characters or other actors who are voicing characters that'll either align with the race or are just animals because you know there's lots of animals involved right angela bassett is in season three yes and also i think she appears briefly in season two and she plays bojack's agent yes and and she is a black woman in the show yeah yeah and it aligns and it works great and it's angela bassett look at that yeah it's not that hard. i think white Sinak also is briefly there yeah white he Sinak. plays a black character right yeah it's I, totally possible right. <laughs> well so the thing is like if the racial mixing thing like part of me is like well if they actually had people of color for instance voicing white people but i don't think they ever do that no. Right. Although I will say there are examples. I came across this very interesting post by a woman named Shasha. And the piece is from a few years ago. It's called The Voice, The Tricky Topic of Race and Voice Actors. And she actually points to a lot of different crossover, mm-hmm. I guess, cross-racial voice acting, mm-hmm. if we want to call it that, that I either had forgotten about or wasn't aware of. You have Cree Summer, who might be familiar to a lot of people as uh, one of the stars of A Different World. She has a very distinct voice. She's done so much voiceover work. She played Susie Carmichael on Rugrats. Uh, though she was one huh. black toddler. and she, But she's also a voice. She was the voice of Penny on Inspector Gadget. Oh, uh-huh. She's a black woman. She played uh-huh. Penny. And she was also the voice of Elmira on Tiny Toon Adventures. So there, it, it does happen in, okay. in animation, which... I, I think to some extent, maybe you, one could argue, and I don't know if I want to argue it, but one could argue that, you know, if it, if it, if the people at balance or if the people outnumber, outnumber the amount of cross racial vocal performance in terms of there being, even though there's this one white person voicing a non-white character, mm-hmm. the rest are all done the quote unquote right way. Uh-huh. Is it not as bad? Right. Well, that, I feel like that was the Disney logic of things. Yes. Which I'm actually, I think, generally okay with. Well, Mulan, for example. Right, right. Mulan was majority Asian, voiced by Asian actors. Right, But right. then you had Harvey Firestein playing one right. role. One of the gods. Right. Yeah. And I think, I'm trying to remember. Well, and then Eddie Murphy played the dragon, but he He's was a, a dragon. dragon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There, there are more issues with Eddie Murphy playing the dragon yes. because it's like, let's make the black guy an animal. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, that does seem to be the Disney logic, at least in recent years. Right. So I think there are many, many other avenues and discussions we could take this conversation. Yeah, totally. And I really don't doubt that there will be plenty of other opportunities, unfortunately, for us to talk about it. <laughs> it's it's a, it's very much a Hollywood old standby. But I think I'm so glad we were able to talk about this. And let's move on to the plus or delta segment. We'll each name one thing that we thought was really great about representation recently or that mm-hmm. we encountered and that we particularly loved mm-hmm. and then for the delta one thing that we were not so hot about okay so what is your plus or delta and delta okay well uh, one of my pluses it's gonna i'm gonna give a shout out to a f- smaller film uh it's called spa night it's by andrew on Ooh, i i saw that and i, I want to or i didn't see it but i saw a, the trailer a, yes oh okay yeah i'm intrigued yeah yeah, yeah. that we we premiered the trailer on vulture uh it premiered at sundance it's a coming of age film of a young gay korean kid in los angeles and it's him finding out that these traditional quote-unquote traditional korean spas that are called jimjilbangs are um 
are also a place for cruising. It's a cruising area for guys. And so it's, it's him exploring these spaces in a new way. It's usually like a place where you go with your family and with your parents or whatever and like hang out. But um, it can also be a different place um, <laughs> as he discovers. Um, and so I think that's a, it's a, it's a gem of a little film that I think deserves to be seen because it's really trying to do something different and very specific to Korean American culture to Los Angeles culture. Cool. Um, so that would be my plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think my delta would have to be uh, Matt Damon's casting in The Great Wall. Oh, that was going to be mine too. <laughs> well, we'll share it, I guess. We can share that one because I think there's enough ire to go around. <laughs> He's going to be defending The Great Wall of China. <laughs> What is this? I don't know. <laughs> and and it's and it's it's set in uh, ancient times. In ancient times. I think the wall is being built, right? And it in order to save it, like there are dragons, so he has to defend it from dragons. <laughs> no it's like Willem Dafoe too. Wait, did I miss that in the trailer? I'm pretty sure Willem Dafoe is also in the movie. Oh. <laughs> I know colonization was a thing, but why are we? <laughs> I honestly don't know. Yes, it, it's so so frustrating. Especially Matt Damon is definitely in my mm. in the last mm-hmm. almost year now. He I used to love mm-hmm. Matt Damon, mm-hmm. and in the last year or so, he has just yes. <sighs> be, first, there was as morphing into Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> Oh God! Oh man! How how does that happen? You're supposed to get more wiser with age. Yeah, no, he's he's no he's not a woke bay. No, he's a despicable bay. No, he's very much asleep. Yeah, and he 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 relishes in that. It seems there is the, the so the first incident that happened uh, back in last fall mm-hmm. was Project Greenlight, right. which came back to HBO, and he had a very notable confrontation with Effie Brown, mm-hmm. uh, a producer, longtime producer, has a lot of experience in the business, and she was supposed to be helping them to get a filmmaker, an unknown filmmaker, off the ground and, and help them direct their first feature film and fund it and, and everything. And he said some st- Stupid, stupid stuff about right. how diversity doesn't happen behind the scenes. It happens on camera. <laughs> Which makes no sense. Makes no sense. And then from there, it just, in the last few months, he's just, now he's in the Great Wall. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you could say to some extent, well, he's an actor. No, he's also one of the most powerful right. actors and he produces and right. he funds and gets things right. done. So right. he chose to make this movie. Right. And he right. And he if his if he decided not to do it, that could actually like make a difference in terms of if he said, "Hey, maybe this is fucked up and we shouldn't do this." What would that conversation look like then in Hollywood? Well, then it'd probably go to Ben Affleck or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I'm just glad Constance Wu called him out. Yes. Oh, oh wait, can we can we just briefly point out her great con- her Constance Wu, who is a star of Fresh Off the Boat, and yes. you've interviewed her. I did. And she is just amazing. She's amazing. She speaks her mind and she speaks it eloquently, and people still don't get it. Right. And that's not her problem. Oh, no, it's not. <laughs> I mean, reading the comment section of any post about this is like a horror show. Um, and and people will just create so many other ad hominem attacks that have literally nothing to do with the substance of what she's saying, which is just that, you know, these white savior narratives are very, very old. And yes. they've been going on since like literature, like 19th century literature of, you know, white men saving Asia. Um, and, and Africa and yes, every literally literally saving everyone, right. Right. <laughs> but not the parts about, you know, smallpox and, and, and you know, killing off right. all, the people, right. all the diseases Let's they gave everyone. That history. <laughs> shovel that under the rug. Um, yeah. And then I was just happy that she was pointing that out. Yes. That this is a something that has been going on for a really long time and B shouldn't be happening anymore. Right. Yeah. Uh, then. Don't make the movie then if you don't think right. <laughs> an Asian person as the lead is not going to work. Just right. don't do it. Right. So we share that delta. Uh-huh, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's end on a what I think is a happier note. Um, my plus for yeah, yeah. this week. So you know how you you kind of get stuck down a, a, a rabbit hole, whether it's Reddit rabbit hole or <laughs> or Wikipedia rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. I recently got stuck in a YouTube rabbit, rabbit hole. Uh-huh. And um, 
was brought back to, I, I was I was brought back to my childhood and this I think a lot of nineties kids will remember it, although I don't feel it's as celebrated as some of the other nineties kids shows like all that. But there's a show called Roundhouse. Do you uh-huh. remember this? I didn't watch kids shows when I was a kid. Okay, all right. <laughs> so this show called Roundhouse was a it was a very unique show. It was a sketch comedy show aimed at preteens, younger kids, but it wasn't a sketch comedy show in the same way that SNL was or or even in Living Color. It was a sketch sketch comedy show. I think these these actors were had to have some sort of improv background because it was a it was all done on one set mm-hmm. and they there was most and it all seemed to happen it it obviously was edited but it was all happening and it was like lightning fast and there was usually a theme of the the episode and then they would do these quick little sketches and vignettes mm. and and as things were as the scene would change the scenery would change and you'd see it all like you, there were no there were no like uh, there was no curtain. It was very clearly you saw everything on stage and all these different moving parts. And they also sang, like they all sang, they, uh-huh. and they danced, and they had these like dance interludes, like in Living Color. Uh-huh. But there were no fly girls. It was like the guys dance and the girls dance. Uh-huh. It was really great. It was like a great musical show. And so I, I was reminded of this show. Earl, uh, aired in the maybe the eight ladies early nineties for like three or four seasons, and uh-huh. I found an episode on YouTube titled Feminism. <laughs> <laughs> And this episode was it, it it it's exactly what it sounds like. They tackle feminism and they tackle it in a very somewhat surprisingly considering it's the early 90s and it was also like a Nickelodeon TV show, surprisingly smart. Hmm. There's a lot of dated references. It came out I think around 92 or 93, so there's like a Malcolm X reference because the movie had just come out. There's a Free Willy <laughs> reference. <laughs> And then there's also a Clint, there's a Hillary Clinton reference, uh-huh. uh, but it's very very smart. One of the there's lots of stuff going on. There's one scene in particular where they they do this very quick uh, sketch where the daughter goes to the goes to her mother and she's like, "Mom, do you ever get that way too fresh feeling?" Oh sure, honey. Men are rude, crude, and totally insensitive. But now there's massive guilt feminist deodorant spray. They've packed thousands of years of female oppression into a four ounce can and given it a fresh pine scent. Just one whiff of massive guilt will have you been the most sexist pig squealing with delight. Oh, I could have been so insensitive. You know, sometimes it's super cheesy. Other times it's very, like, spot on and, and kind of smart. And I'm surprised that I was able to watch this show. I think it all went over my head. Some mm. of it, they even talk about sex a little bit. And What network was it on? It was on Nickelodeon. Oh, okay. I mean, granted, they sometimes teetered, you know, Ren and Stimpy was also very, uh-huh. not probably not appropriate for kids under the age of 10 or 11. But... I'm just I'm really glad that that a show like that existed. I think people should watch it. It's on YouTube. There's a few episodes on YouTube. Watch the feminism uh, episode because it's still sadly very relevant, especially in our Trump age. One character is this sort of Archie plays the dad and he's this very Archie Bunker guy who only he the only way he moves for the most part is on this motorized couch like lazy boy. (laughs) He has everything he needs and he's like, where's my dinner? You're my wife. I don't care about your job. You're supposed to make my dinner. <laughs> but he but he's clearly he is the they're making fun of him. You are a terrible right. person. So right. it's I just think it's really smart and I miss Roundhouse and I wish there was something similar today that We should reboot it. I mean they, they totally it. should. It also had a really great theme song. You'll have a celebration. I think those were the Oh, that sounds great. It, had a, it was fun. Yeah. So that's my my plus. I I I just wanted to let people know that it exists and they should go watch it. And I mean, I'm going to go watch it after this. Yes. Indulge in the 90s nostalgia. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Alex, for coming thank and talking you. with me. You'll be back soon on the show, I hope. Most definitely. Yes. And check out Alex's work on Vulture. And you can follow me on Twitter at uh, E underscore Alex Jung. Next, I sat down with filmmaker Mira Menon, who just directed a new film called Equity. 
It's a Wall Street thriller about corruption, lies, deceit, and greed. And such themes pretty much go hand in hand with movies about Wall Street, except for the fact that equity is different. It centers around three women with varying degrees of power, but with power nonetheless. Anna Gunn, of Breaking Bad fame, gives a searing performance alongside powerful turns from Orange is the New Black's Alicia Reiner, who plays a state attorney and former college classmate of Naomi's and who is also investigating her and her company for fraud, and Sarah Megan Thomas, who plays Naomi's right-hand woman. This isn't Menon's first time bringing complex women to the big screen. Her feature debut, Farrah Goes Bang, features three young women who, in 2004, set out on a road trip in order to help campaign for John Kerry. While equity and fair are different in terms of class and ethnic representation, there's an obvious through line between the two, which is that women are contending with all the many, often contradictory ways in which we're supposed to exist in a world where we're so often undervalued or not valued at all. I would suggest, in addition to watching Equity, you should definitely check out Farrah Goes Bang as well. Here's our conversation. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Very, very excited to be here at the ah. Slate offices. It's very <laughs> I'm exciting. very excited to have you here. <laughs> so this is your second feature film mm-hmm. after the indie comedy uh, Farrah Goes Bang. Yeah. And that one you were credited as a co-writer on the script. For mm-hmm. this film, Equity, you are not Amy Fox's. Yeah. So how did you get involved with the film and, and what yeah. drew you to the film in the first place? You know, it's just like I feel like I just tripped and got like lucky because after my first film which was really just like a grassroots driven effort we raised the money on kickstarter we uh, you know hustled around to 35 plus festivals really building an audience for it and then self-distributed it i was kind of trying to figure out how to put together uh, another feature for myself and and obviously a little nervous of the sophomore slump that a lot of directors face. Um, but I just kind of got lucky. Basically, Alicia Reiner was one of the actors and producers of Equity, knew a producer that I had worked with on Farago's Bang, and she and her producing partner, Sarah Megan Thomas, had been specifically looking for a female director to attach onto the project. And um, and they just approached me with the material. They had been developing the screenplay with Amy Fox for pro- probably like six months before they, um, before they started looking for a director. And... Uh, and they sent me the material and I read the script and I just really loved, I loved Amy's writing. I mean, Amy had the kind of writing that I knew would be actor bait. I knew we'd be able to find kind of tremendous, uh, a tremendous cast for it because she's, I think it's her background in playwriting that really kind of uh, gives her the ability to write scenes that actors just love to play. And um, and I just really wanted to be a part of it. I liked the kind of a bottom line they had to put content out there that was kind of pushing the needle forward in terms of roles we see for women on screen and and I just got the tone yeah I just got what they were going for pretty instantly and uh, and so I kind of I, I read the script kind of gave them my take on it and we kind of took it from there and the tone is is very dark and twisty yeah. in a way it, it it starts off I think sort of as this procedural uh, Wall Street corrupt corruption that yeah. sort of thing but then it turns into more of a thriller, a sort of cat and mouse right. game between Alicia's character, and she plays mm-hmm. Sam. Yeah, she plays a federal prosecutor that's like investigating potentially corrupt practices in, right. in the bank. Right, and yeah. then Anna Gunn plays, and Anna Gunn is amazing. Anna Gunn, she I know. is just a powerhouse in this film. <laughs> she's just so she's just got the simmering intensity that like you can't you can't like you can't learn that that's yeah. just like one she's got one of those screen presences that's just like magnetic yeah yeah she plays naomi mm-hmm. um who is a uh What's the what's the word? All these terms. That- I know. I know. I had to learn too. I don't know anything about the financial. I didn't know anything about the financial world. But she's a senior managing director at an investment bank. Yeah. Right. And yeah. she, yes. Now that's. I guess that's another question I'd like to ask, which is, how did you prepare for yeah. for that the financial world? And and did you speak to real life women who are in power in Wall Street? Yeah. Yeah. So I was lucky because, and maybe because it was actor driven material. The producers being actors in the film, there was a tremendous amount of research that went into the development of. The the script that Amy really kind of distilled into the script that uh, we eventually shot. Um, and and the three of them, the two producers and Amy, had spent a lot of time talking to women that actually worked on Wall Street, specifically women that had worked in investment banking, and specifically women that had experience taking high-profile tech companies public, which is the kind of main driving narrative of the film. Um, and so through, through their research, I got to meet a bunch of women and kind of just sit them down and just kind of understand what a day in the life of an investment banker is, especially when they're 
about to take a company public, and and it was really through them that I was able to understand the kinds of, the kind of ins and outs of, of the business of it. Yeah. Were there stories similar to the one <clears throat> the one that um, Naomi faces, which is at the very beginning of the film, we she's trying to close this IPO with a company, yeah. and then she's told later that it's fallen through at the last minute because she's been told that she's rubbed them the wrong way. Yeah, which I think we can yeah. maybe all agree, or at least you and I might agree, that that is a very gendered term that is not usually used exactly. for men. Yeah. Were there stories similar to that? Across the board, I think when you put women in positions of authority in general, but like specifically in this role where women are kind of leading the charge, you know, kind of driving the room, kind of negotiating pricing, um, you you kind of encounter this issue of perception, you know, this issue of like, if you're too tough, you're perceived as a bitch. If you're too weak, uh, too nice, you're perceived as weak. And so we, the kind of exploration of Naomi's character, of Anna's, Anna Gunn's character, is how she kind of rides that line or walks that tightrope. And across the board, every woman we talked to on Wall Street talked about how um, how much that was an issue and how much they had to deal with this issue of perception in terms of being taken seriously and also being validated and promoted for, rightfully for the work that they do. And how did you work with the actors in that capacity? Like, what were the conversations like with with Anna and Alicia and and Sarah? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was it was about that was about relating relating that particular issue and 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 negotiating that issue in in what we do in the film industry and how they negotiated as an as actors. Um, specifically with Anna, I mean, she had a she had a very kind of um, similar experience with the way people reacted to her character Skylar White on Breaking Bad. Right. People People either love Skylar or they hated her, and she was a real flashpoint for how I think audiences feel about tough, um, sharp, sometimes sharp, often vulnerable um, female characters. You know, uh, and 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 she, ha- yeah. So she really related to to that, to the way um, to the way audiences can or, or people can really misinterpret strength mm-hmm. for, on a woman. And what about you? You are a filmmaker, and I think even more so than an actor yeah. uh, has p- potentially more power and more bargaining power. Yeah. Have you ever experienced moments where you were told in a way you were too strong or, or you rub people the wrong way? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely like uh, grappled with how to be authoritative and purposeful in what I want, um, but not, you know, kind of toe that line into being perceived as a bitch. I mean, I definitely think that that's something, you know, I talked to a lot of female director friends of mine, especially that have written that line, because often, you know, as, as much as, you know, like things are kind of changing and shifting in the landscape, when you're running a film crew on a film set, it's still largely male dominated. You know, like I had wonder, I had a wonderful crew, but I still had a male first AD and a largely male crew, uh, assistant director, um, and so and so. Yeah, I had to really kind of figure out where, how I wanted to wear authority in a way that was effective and not misinterpreted on a nearly daily basis. I mean, yeah, you kind of constantly have this like kind of meta thing in your head where you're checking yourself and trying to make sure that you're not kind of crossing over into a place where you know suddenly there can be you're giving kind of license to to people whispering in corners about like how you're how you're how you know how how bossy you're being or how you're wearing that role yeah, yeah I mean it, it, it sort of reminded me of that uh, Maureen Dowd piece in the Times last fall when there was a lot of talk about she interviewed I think dozens yeah. of, of different mm-hmm. uh, women directors about their experiences and the idea I think there are so many parallels that can be made between equity in, in the Wall Street world and the filmmaking mm. world as well. And just yeah. it it says to me that it doesn't really matter what business you're in, it's still going to be difficult. Yeah, yeah. And I think similarly, in, in both worlds, you, you tend to be defined by your, uh, you're only as good as your last success or your last failure. And that's definitely where we see Anna Gunn's character positioned at the beginning of the film. She's really kind of haunted by this recent failure she's had, even though she's presumably worked at this bank for 25 plus years and really established herself as a figure within that world. She's still um, kind of held, she's only kind of being held accountable for for, for for her latest. Mm. Mm-hmm. What was your vision for this film? Like after reading the script, and you said earlier that you understood the tone that they were going for, that, that Amy was going for, mm-hmm. like visually, 
Mm-hmm. What, what were you going for in terms of how you wanted to present this world? Yeah, I mean, I think what excited me about the material, I mean, my first film, I mean, because namely it was made for like a dollar, um, <laughs> was very like kind of loose and impressionistic and shot very guerrilla style and we were improvising a lot. And when I read this script, it really presented an opportunity to approach the filmmaking from a kind of precision or a kind of purposeful kind of geometry, like a David Fincher film. Like those, the David Fincher was the first filmmaker that I think came to mind as a reference point. Michael Mann came to mind as a reference point um, as just like filmmakers that really kind of provide um, yeah a kind of precision and a, and a kind of calculation of filmmaking where everything felt like kind of feels very um, like like a Jenga tower very carefully kind of um, carefully constructed carefully built up and you know kind of trying to make sure that it 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 keeps that audience it keeps that it keeps the audience on the edge of their seat wondering like which yeah again with the Jenga that's that's what's brilliant about Amy there's a Jenga tower that factors heavily as a metaphor into the film and uh, and I think that's what's the brilliance of Amy's writing is she really provided the material in the writing to extract the visual metaphor and that felt like a really appropriate metaphor that if like one piece you know if you just moved it in the slightly wrong direction the whole thing could fall apart and that was that was the kind of visual metaphor we used in approaching filming it yeah I definitely got now that you mentioned I definitely got uh the uh Fincher vibes from from the film yeah and the, in the j- score too. The score was heavily influenced by the social network. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The the Jenga scene, just so listeners kind of get a feel for what that is, that it's a recurring theme throughout the film. Mm-hmm. And that's every time she goes to her boss's Anna Gunn's character, Naomi goes to visit him. And yeah. he's always picking apart these Jenga Jenga pieces yeah. while he's telling her why he, she can't get a promotion. <laughs> right, right. And it just kind of really also underscores how the whole thing is is a game. I mean, one of my favorite moments in the film is when James Purefoy's character or uh, or Anna says to James Purefoy's character, it's and all just a game to you. And he says, what else is there? And I think that that is kind of what I was compelled by in 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 staging it was, that, you know, it also reminded me of, of shows like Mad Men and, of course, House of Cards um, in that, like, there's some inherent fun as an audience watching people that are really good at what they do, the smartest people in the room doing what they're really good at doing. And so the, ga- the game of it was also something I was really compelled by. And James yeah. Purifoy plays Anna Gunn's characters, sort of boyfriend, lover, they're undercover, yeah. they work together, so they're yeah. keeping it under wraps. And he's, yeah. I don't think it's spoiling to say he, he pro- perhaps shouldn't be trusted. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that was one of the things I found really fascinating was that at, at least what I took away from it in a way was the fact that the women, for the most part, even though this is a movie set in Wall Street, all of their characters are at least trying to do the right thing from the beginning, mm-hmm. whereas all the men around them are just <laughs> completely corrupt. And I don't know yeah. if that was what you were going for, but yeah. I kind of took that away. Yeah. And the men are kind of the, you know, if it, we were also interested in kind of fashioning it as a contemporary noir. The men are kind of homme fatales. I think I, actually a, a review described them as homme fatales. And I really liked that because traditionally in film noir, it's always, uh, you know, like a Barbara Stanwyck type character that seemingly is, you know, kind of earning the trust of the of the hero but backstabs them somewhere along the way yeah um and so that was i think flipping the script on that genre a little bit too or this film is attempting to yeah you well when the film first came out at sundance when it premiered at sundance i think every review i read or people who had seen it they compared it to the big short i think part of it was the fact that the big short back in january had just come out (laughs) out, and it was also the oscar season and And it has a jenga tower and it has a a jenga tower Uh, (laughs) but how did that make you feel do you feel like that's a true assessment and or do you feel that that's sort of a limited way of looking at this film and what you were trying to do with it well i think uh i mean i think the the comparison probably ends at you know just uh, the audience, the fact that audiences, I think, respond to stories about the financial world because if you are not a part of it, if you don't work in it, it has a kind of mystery and intrigue to it. There is high stakes. There's a lot of money at play, and there's a lot of power being exchanged. So I think if you're not a part of it, there is a draw towards understanding what it's about. And mm. so that's why I think Wall Street movies have always done well. You know, they're they're always um, they kind of pres- give us a little kind of peek behind the curtain into into how how that how money and power are exchanged. So so in that way, I think maybe there is a comparison. I think the same audiences that were drawn to that movie would be drawn to this movie. Um, but yeah, aesthetically and stylistically and just in terms of the story we're telling, it's it's quite different. Yeah. Yeah, it's that one it seemed to take more of a gleeful yeah. po- like point of yeah. view. Granted at the end everything is goes to 
goes to shit. But right, right. Uh, but I think your film to me cast more of a a, a pallor or like a sort of yeah. you know dim part dim yeah. look on things that seems more sort of like a movie maybe boiler room yeah. or even the original wall street yeah absolutely uh, rather than the big short i i agree that it feels a little yeah underselling yeah, yeah yeah and i think the big short was kind of an almost an act of like reportage like it was explaining you know that the housing crisis as it related to the financial industry at that moment in time i found i walked away from that experience of watching that movie just feeling educated about something that i didn't quite understand as deeply as the as the film allowed me to and our film is just it's 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 a it's a character driven story it's really again i think because amy's got a background in playwriting it's really just it's a it's a dramatic um character-driven uh corporate drama you know yeah and i think um yeah i think that the just the the kind of investigation of the financial world is kind of where the comparison ends yeah yeah i would love to talk a little bit more about your first feature farrah goes bang that is a indie comedy uh centered around three young women just college graduates just graduated from college it's set in 2004 during the campaign between john Kerry and george bush and these three young women are all going off on a road trip to help campaign for Kerry. yeah uh so it's I thought it was very fascinating and and funny. And one of the things I loved about it is the fact that it is a very, for lack of a better word, diverse film without mm-hmm. feeling forced. Right. Without feeling forced. Good, yeah. And you have the lead character, Farah. She mm-hmm. is Iranian. Iranian. Yeah. Iranian. Yeah, yeah. And then her friends, one is a white American mm-hmm. and the other one is Indian American. Yeah. And there's a lot of very cultural specificity within that film. Right. There's a scene in which she she's shaving. Yeah. Farah is shaving. And, like, and, yeah. A lot of hair removal scenes. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And that kind of speaks to the culture <laughs> of uh, that yeah. I know of some Being South Being from Asians. the hair belt. Yes. Hair I say all this to to kind of draw because I think that film is very sort of very culturally specific, whereas um, Equity is kind of just one sort of world where it's mostly white and I, I think maybe there's one or two non white characters. One of them is Naomi's like one of her underlings. Right. So and like Alicia's wife, Tracy Toms. Right. Yes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now. Was how did you did that change at all how you approached the film as a woman of color? Um, and were, was this something you were been conscious of that this was a very specific world that is not uh, so inclusive of of non white folks? You know, I was and I wasn't. Though I was, you know, I thought I felt a responsibility and and also an intention being brought onto the project to propose several actresses of color for the lead role for Naomi. Um, you know, I think the reality is also when you start to kind of scale up with these movies and we're working with casting directors and agencies you get like lists of actresses that are available and right for the part and uh and those lists are maybe still you know 90 percent white and 10 percent you know not and Mm -hmm. that's just you know like the bucket of like non-white you know assorted ethnicity or background within that and so so there were several actresses i had proposed you know obviously the two producers were already kind of set to play the the supporting characters and with naomi's character there were several actresses of color i had like positioned and presented as being possible for that role but at the end of the day then anna gunn read it and uh, and she was right for the part but it was one of those things throughout the experience that i wondered because part of my intention and purpose i feel like as a filmmaker is to broaden and diversify what we see and what what we kind of expect in terms of of casting potential within you know any kind of material so I don't know if it necessarily changed my, because, you know, then once the cast was in place, you know, I just approached it the way I would any kind of approach any story on a kind of human level. But in the initial, you know, in the initial kind of casting process, it was something I was aware of and, and you know, kind of made, because I was, I think, the only person of color in the whole team. So I kind of felt that it was my responsibility and will kind of, and in, in a continuing way, the scripts I'm reading now, the meetings I have now about movies kind of going forward, I feel like, you know, it's often my responsibility to just present the you know present as a conversation you know the option to mm. cast outside of what people are expecting or know you know yeah um 
That's half the battle. Yeah, that's half the battle, you know. Yeah. yeah. Were, were the producers sort of uh, at least receptive to that in terms oh, yeah. of... Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, that that's what I found to be fortunate. It was a very open kind of environment for that. And there are a couple of South Asian kind of like speaking roles. You know, there are a couple of speaking roles in here and there that I kind of was able to staple in some, some diversity into within the film. But it is something, um, yeah, it's something I feel very strongly about. And, and, and it's something I definitely, you know, kind of they knew, you know, once they brought me on that I very much bring to the table as a point of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and then there is, there is a reality to the fact that, that Wall Street is in a, an entirely inclusive environment, though, you know, Asian Americans, you know, there are... Vi- are very present in that environment. And so uh, there were a bunch of South Asian actors I had presented for some of the male roles and, uh, and East Asian actors for various roles. And so there, there were opportunities. And, that, and that's what it's also really about is kind of wherever there's an opportunity, just kind of opening up, you know, what, uh, what's possible, you know. You were also a fellow for the 20th Century Fox... Global Directors Initiative. Yes, yeah. the 20th Century Fox yeah. Global Directors Initiative. Yeah. What was that experience like for you, and do you, what did you take away from that? It was basically like a kind of incubator for for me and twenty other. My class happened to be all female directors of all different races and backgrounds, and uh, and the point of the program was really to kind of put our faces and get our names on the radar of kind of top executives within the kind of Fox system, which is an ongoing effort to just get us on like the lists of like directors they're considering for an episode of television here or there or get them on you know like the radar of a feature that's being produced at, at the on, in the feature side um so it was really about exposing us you know kind of exposing the system to us um and but like but actually i think more directly the best impact it's had on my life is the women in that program continue to be a kind of support structure for each other. We kind of pass along jobs to one another, pass along tips of the trade. If someone gets an episode of a TV show, like they kind of send, will send out emails kind of explaining how they got it, like just kind of being, um, just sharing knowledge on how to kind of navigate entering into spaces that are being denied to us, you know? Um, so that's what I found to be kind of the best part of it. Um, but yeah, it was a really, really cool experience. I mean, it was just a very cool experience to, to have a gate pass into Fox Studios. I mean, that I, I think, I think from, and maybe it's because I, I rarely see, you know, women in this position, let alone South Asian women, women of color, directing, creating content. I've always kind of assumed my place or the place I could really kind of establish myself in in the film world exists outside of the system, exists in the independent film world, and so to even be kind of provide that gesture of inclusion into the system is I think a, 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 an almost kind of like revolutionary act of self you know like when I got into that program it, it, it flipped a switch in terms of what I thought was possible that I could exist as an entity within that system you know. There's a lot of programs like this now you're seeing in the yeah. last few years different studios are, are, are attempting to do this in the same way that the 20th Century Fox did for you. Right. Do you feel as though Overall, they are helping to move the needle enough. I think they're doing something. I mean, I think it's like it's a heavy boulder to be mm-hmm. pushing uphill. And I think that the more energy there is around it, the more possible it will be. But it's hard for I mean, I think the arc is long, but I think we'll bend towards some sort of justice on it. And I think any effort that's kind of like at least it, trying to promote it in a visible way is is commendable, you know. Mm. But, you know, I think it'll take time for it to really feel like the scales have tipped. But at least I feel like the conversation is tipping. Yeah, it, it it does. It does feel as though the conversation is happening, and I just hope that more people like yourself, who are in like sort of positions of right. power, are able to try and get people in in, in the door in any way possible. And it sounds yeah. like that's that's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's about just kind of ex- getting yourself, you know, in a position to be. Um, to make the big decisions, mm. you know, and, and that's, that's also a slow climb, I find, you know, like, I think that, you know, I would love to direct studio projects, I would love not just, you know, for my own edification as a filmmaker, it would be really fun to work on that scale. But I want to be able to prove myself within that capacity so that I have the ability to, 
to to cast with diversity and to tell stories of uh, you know that have of, of characters that have traditionally existed in the margins, pull them into the center, like mm-hmm. be able to um, yeah have the authority and authorship over the kind of stories I think that will actually start to make an impact in in terms of this diversity question. But that takes um, that takes time and clout and establishment, and that's hopefully the climb I'm on. <laughs> Is there anyone in particular who helped you? Um, in your journey? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, like everyone that ever like worked for free on anything that I've done. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Or maybe just anyone who might be above you in terms of where you want to be, who maybe it was a mentor or who helped introduce you to the right person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, well, one of the producers that introduced me to Alicia Reiner, who brought me on to Equity, was this guy, Mark Stoleroff, who runs these classes called the No Budget Film School in L.A. And I sought him out with my producing partner, Laura, when we made Farrago's Bang. I sought him out to kind of mentor us through the process of making movies for no money, mm-hmm. um, which is, again, I think what you have to do if you're looking to tell stories that haven't traditionally been told and cast people that haven't traditionally been cast. You have to kind of start with nothing, you know, and prove that you have something to say you know and so and and so he he was really a a kind of guiding figure in figuring out just the kind of mechanics and understanding how to build a movie um out of scratch and uh and he continues to teach those classes in la produces independent films and he and he introduced me to alicia and he continues to be kind of a mentor through that process for me um, and then I also had a wonderful teacher at USC, Peter Sollett, who's an amazing director, directed Raising Victor Vargas, hmm. Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, uh, most recently Freehild. And he's always been like a real mentor figure for me in terms of the field of directing, the the practice of directing and the craft of it. Um, and then my dad, my, my father... Um, you know, he came to this, I mean, this is kind of a longer story, but my father came to this country in the 70s from India, and he came here and he saw there was no place to go watch movies from his homeland. And so he started to organize uh, screenings. He would uh, mail prints of like 16 millimeter prints of South Indian movies to New York and rent out high school gymnasiums and screen them and put up flyers in grocery stores. And first screening he had, he just like, yeah, he just was putting up flyers around town and 600 people showed up and he kind of recognized the importance of wow. having movies movies, you know, that uh, reflect your culture and where you're from for a community that is um, that is uh, existing on the margins, you know, that an, an Im- the immigrant community that he had come here with that didn't have a place to kind of gather and connect and remember where they were from. And and since then, he's kind of like, yeah, he's always kind of stayed connected and, and kind of created a community for himself and my family through movies. And so that's always been a guiding principle for me is understanding the power movies and stories have to build community and build our sense of selves through community. Um, so yeah, he's, he's always kind of been an inspiration for me and just a good reality check about what what's real and what's not real in the biz (laughs) one of the one of my favorite moments of the film is when naomi and alicia are at a alumni event and they are both on the panel and someone in the audience asks why do you want to wake what makes you want to wake up every morning and she says money yeah what makes you want to wake up every morning and do what you do money no (laughs) i don't have any so right now money um what makes me it's it's exactly that it's feeling like i you know that sense of exclusion when you're growing up when you don't see yourself in 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 your media culture is what drives me to be a filmmaker you know like i always say if the mindy project was on when i was a kid i might not have the same kind of drive and impetus that i do now like that would have like completely changed kind of my sense of self to have mm-hmm. seen a dark skinned indian woman indian american woman um you know, just kind of living like a life that f- and speaking in a way that f- felt like familiar to me because she was born here, you know, um, that wanting to kind of just broaden, you know, yeah, just broaden the landscape of the type of stories we tell and the people we see telling them is is absolutely what makes me feel like it's it's important to stay in the game because it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my yeah. my last question, which I've I'm asking pretty much all of my guests and it sounds like the Mindy Project might be one answer but when was the last time you felt represented on screen? Mm-hmm. Um, well I know I remember the first time uh, was uh, and then I'll say the last time was uh, Masters, 
Master of None, mm. right? The Aziz Ansari show. I mean, such I love such a great show, and I love the way he. Um, I love the way he played that hand. You know, like he, as a stand-up comedian, for the, was just kicking it and kind of grinding. You know, axe to the grind for the longest time. Eventually, selling out in Madison Square Garden several nights in a row. And once he had that platform, threw down his thesis on race and identity. You yeah. know, like I just love that. You know, sort um, of. I don't. I don't want to say sneaky, but it's a little. Yeah. You know, it's it's strategic. Yeah, because he had the audience that was receptive to who he was and his for his brand of comedy and then and then he said and then he spoke his mind you know and i love that um i remember though the first time i experienced that was seeing mira nair's mississippi masala i love that movie it's such an incredible movie but like saritha chowdhury in that movie was literally the first time i saw an indian woman again speak talk kind of act the way i did with this immigrant identity um and 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 you know denzel washington isn't too bad to look at in that movie oh, too. Man. <laughs> it's that rare movie what i appreciate about that movie is the rare movie where it's an interracial romance but neither of them are white yes like exactly <laughs> it's so so nice to so see that. nice yeah and it's still yeah i mean that's that's it, it it actually still kind of holds up as being really kind of progressive and moving the needle forward in some way after all these years for that reason yeah yeah um but yeah, so so those two, I would say, bookend some some act of uh, of, of awakening for me. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mira, for coming Thanks. on. And Thanks for having me. Equity is in theaters now, and uh, everyone should go and check it out. Hey, that was so much fun. Thanks again to Alex for parsing through the weird cross-racial voiceover casting of BoJack Horseman, and to Mira for chatting about her experiences in Hollywood and her new film, Equity, out in theaters now. You'll find a link to some of the many things we discussed today in the show notes, and be sure to check back for our next episode in two weeks. And please, if you liked this conversation and want to hear more, rate us on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. And a special, special shout out to the Another Round podcast crew over at BuzzFeed. I recently had the great fortune of chatting with Tracy and guest host Bim Adewunmi about the state of black film. And I cannot wait for you all to hear it when it drops. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer of Panoply. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. Music is performed by the amazing San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. 